sermon series um, today called um, Something Beautiful for God, uh, Christian Vision for Human Sexuality. Next week, I'll uh, give you an outline of the whole. It's going to be a year-long series. Um, But this morning, I want us to start with Jesus. And in a way, you can think of this sermon as a down payment on a house that will take a year to pay off. Um, Every point and sub-point of this sermon probably has an entire sermon devoted to it uh, through the course of this year. Um, But I think it's important that, in a way, this this text from Matthew 19... um, uh, it's going to frame the whole, the whole series. So here, uh, God's word to us this morning from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, verses 3 through 12. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send him her away? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. O God, we all come here as sexual sinners. There's not a person sitting here that is not. And as we come to this text, this passage of Jesus, which has many hard, difficult teachings, help us to nevertheless see that as he holds out what your standard is as you created us, that God, you are God in the person of Jesus Christ that is always moving towards sexual sinners, always moving towards those who are broken and who have messed up, and that there's nothing that stands between us and your healing grace except the own hardness of our own hearts. And so we pray this morning that you would soften our hearts to hear your word and receive your grace. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So this passage captures the essence of Jesus' teaching on sexual ethics. And I think it's important um, as an introduction to this series and to this um, text to allow Jesus to set some ground rules. And there are four ground rules that Jesus sets, and I I could spend a whole sermon on each of them, but I'm going to try to be brief, and I'll come back to these. But Jesus sets four ground rules for talking about sex, for talking about this and reflecting on this question of sexuality. And a little bit of context for this verse is very important, I think. So the Pharisees, who are the sort of religious authorities and leaders, they're the ones who know the law, they are baiting Jesus into an interpretive debate on sexuality 
over a passage in, Mo, in the book of Deuteronomy about the permissibility of divorce. So they're sort of baiting Jesus into this. And in the background, of course, John the Baptist has just been beheaded by Herod because he called Herod's marriage unlawful because Herod divorced his previous wife and took his brother's wife, Herodias, as his wife. And John called him out on his marriage, and this led to John's death. And so the Pharisees are perhaps hoping that Jesus will say something that will be very offensive, that will kind of get him in trouble. But Jesus does not allow the Pharisees to set the context and the, and the ground rules for the conversation, and he sets them in this text. And so there's four principles I want to draw your attention to. And the first one is this, and they need to be our principles. It's what I'll call the scripture principle. The Pharisees ask the question, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus' first response is, have you not read? Have you not read? In other words, have you not read the scriptures? And he, you know, they're debating a scriptural point, but Jesus draws them back to the bigger picture of scripture. And one of the, the things that I think, if you're sitting here and if you want to sort of go along in this journey through the next year, thinking about this question of sexuality broadly, a conviction that... I ask all of us to share is this, is that we start our conversations about human sexuality on the basis of the word of God, not human experience. That has to be the ground floor. In other words, we don't start with our own experience to, to kind of come to a conclusion about what is true and right. That's not to say our own experience doesn't play a role, but we, but, but we start with the word of God. But the second principle that Jesus draws our attention to is what I'll call the big story principle. See, the the Pharisees were very narrowly focused on this one text of Scripture in Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus' response is to not respond, but to say, have you not read that in the beginning, God created it this way? Don't you see the whole context? See, you know why Moses allowed for divorce? It's because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not so from the beginning. And so what Jesus does is he he reframes the conversation. He says, we're not going to debate about get lost in the minutiae of things. You have to see the big story. And I, that's, that's the reason why we're going to take a year to discuss this question of sexuality. Because in a sense, we've lost the story in our culture. We, we don't actually know the story. We don't realize actually we've absorbed the culture's story. And, in, and this, I think, comes up on both sides, really uh, traditional side and the really what I'll call the revisionist side or progressive side on sexual ethics in the church. Traditionalists, when it comes to sexual ethics, they tend to say, well, thou shalt not, right? Thou shalt not sleep with your girlfriend or thou shalt not marry a man and a man. And it's a very negatively defined understanding of sexuality. But then on the other side, those who want to sort of, um, say, liberalize the church's teaching on this tend to really focus very narrowly um, on key passages and not see the whole context. And Jesus is saying to us, what does the whole story say? But the third principle, and this follows from the second one, is what I'll call the creation principle. Note that Jesus, what he does is he takes the conversation back to the original creation. God created them in the beginning, male and female. And the point here, this is such a critical point. As Christians, we do not start conversations about sexual ethics or ethics, the moral life broadly, by looking to um, secondary provisions and exceptions based on the fall. We ask the question, what was God's original design? We start with God's original design, not with the broken reality. That's where we have to start the conversation. That's where Jesus does. And then fourth and finally, this principle is all called the new command principle. You see there this phrase that Jesus says in verse 9, And I say to you, 
And I say to you, this is a a key phrase in the Gospel of Matthew, and you see it play out, especially in in the Sermon on the Mountain, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, any man who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery. You have heard it said, if you write a certificate of divorce to your wife, you may leave her, but I say, any man who divorces his wife except for sexual adultery himself becomes an adulterer. Now here's the point. What is Jesus doing here? You know, I think there's a general perception in our culture that somehow when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to relax things, he kind of he loosens things up a little bit. He's more open-minded. And actually what you see is Jesus moving in the very opposite direction. Jesus makes it more rigorous. He makes it more demanding. One of the things that you have to kind of see when you you reflect on Jesus, when he talks about questions of sexual ethics, is actually he ups the ante. And that raises, I think, a really interesting question that I want us to kind of wrestle with for the rest of this sermon. Why does he do that? Why is sex such a big deal? Why do Christians seem to be obsessed about sex? Or Or care what happens and what other people do with their bodies? And the very short answer is this. And I'll sort of unpack this for the rest of this sermon. Friends, Jesus came not just to save souls. He came to save the whole creation and bodies. And human sexuality and what we do with our bodies is at the center of what it means to be a human being. It's at the center. It touches so many things. That's how I can talk about it for a year, and hopefully you won't get too bored. But Jesus wants to save the whole person, and our our sexual... um, our sexuality is at the center of that. And so there's three, three points I want to reflect on um, with you this morning that Jesus teaches us about marriage. Um, he teaches about the centrality of marriage. He teaches us about the essence of marriage. And he teaches us about the alternative to marriage. So the centrality, the essence, and the alternative. Now I want to return to this question, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about marriage and sexuality? Why are we talking about it so much? What, what justifies a kind of a, a year-long series about this? The Bible opens with a marriage. And the Bible closes with a marriage. And throughout the whole of Scripture, marriage becomes a controlling metaphor for God's relationship with his people, both in Israel, but also in the context of the church, the church as the bride of Christ. Marriage is not an incidental thing in the biblical world. It's a, it's a, it's a massive thing. But I'll, and I'll get back to that later, but, but here in particular, what Jesus is telling us about marriage, it is that marriage is at the center of our understanding of the cosmos and in our understanding of the human nature. It's at the center of the cosmos and at the center of our understanding of human nature. It's important that Jesus, he goes back and what he's doing is he's quoting Genesis And what he does is he splices two verses from Genesis together. One from chapter 1 and one from chapter 2. And he says, He, that is God, created from the beginning and made the male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. See, marriage is part of the cosmos that God created. And you go back, right, and you start with a big picture. You know, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then God divides the light and the darkness. And then God uh, creates the land and the sea. The plants and the animals, male and female. And then we jump to chapter 2, and the lens of creation is focused on the sixth day when God creates human beings. And what does he do? He creates Adam first, 
And then he helps Adam feel his loneliness and realize his need for another, and he creates Eve. And then right there, right after that, God creates marriage. And so the last thing that God creates in the cosmos before he rests is marriage. That's the last thing that God creates. And so when you think about marriage, you have to think about marriage as, as part of the cosmos. Just like God created the Milky Way, sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea, the animals, God creates marriage. It's part of the cosmos. It's the very last thing. And it's significant that it's the last thing. Because in the created order, the, closer, the further along you get, the closer you get more and more likeness to God. God creates human beings on the last day created in the image of God, and then he gives them marriage. And there's something about marriage that reveals something about what it means to be image bearers of God. What does this mean? And, and Well, here's Jesus' one-sentence commentary on this verse. One-sentence commentary. He says, What God has joined, let no man separate. That's his one commentary on those verses of Genesis. And what he's saying there is that God is the one who does the joining. In marriage, God is active. He's still the creator in the process of marriage. He's the one who designed it. And what this means, I think, for us as we reflect on the meaning of marriage in our culture is this, is that marriage is not a social construct. Marriage is not a human invention. It's, it's not something that we've made up. It's, it's, in, it's woven within the fabric of creation itself. Um, our kids... Uh, we had a, a butterfly garden, or not garden, like a, we, we had a couple caterpillars, some monarch butterflies, and we had this uh, cage that we put them in, and we watched them sort of eat the milkweed and sort of cocoon up and then turn into butterflies. And um, as my family instructed me, these monarch butterflies will actually, these ones here, if they live, will fly all the way to Mexico. There's a place in Mexico that millions and probably billions of monarch butterflies fly from all across North America in order to then give birth and die, and then theirs fly back. Now, who, and I was like, no, that's not true. I was, but it is true. And I thought to myself, who taught, who teaches those monarchs to fly to Mexico? Is that a learned thing? I mean, like, do they... I mean, but they have this internal GPS system, right, that just tells them to, to, to fly to the specific place in Mexico. See, friends, that's what marriage is like. Marriage is like that instinct. There's, you know, who teaches marriage? There is no human culture in history that has not had marriage. None. Now, certainly you've had very twisted and messed up views of marriage, polygamy being one of them, but there's not a single culture in human history that has not had some form of the institution of marriage. It's part of the cosmos. It's part of the cosmos. Just as much as that monarch butterfly has the instinct and drive to fly to Mexico, there's this instinct within all of you, within me, with all of us, towards marriage. It's part of human nature. When Adam and Eve were... Marriage was born on the same day Adam and Eve were born. Marriage was born on the same day that Adam and Eve were born. And in the Bible, marriage is not, again, marriage is part of an account of what it means to be human. Think about this. It's a, it's a, it's an, I mean, marriage is a part of what it means to be human. It's part of uh, an understanding of, of the fullness of, of, of our humanity. It's instinctual. And now, some of you might be thinking, okay, <laughs> I'm single. What does marriage have to do? But here's the reality, friends. Whether you're single or married... You, you exist because of, ordinarily and ideally, you exist 
because somebody else has marriage. You, you, the ver- your very existence, most likely, is due to the fact that we're, there were two other people that got married, and you are a product of that marriage and love. Now, we know this doesn't always happen, but that's how God set it up. That's ideally how universally we think it should work. And even if you never marry in your life, and you're single, you're always defining yourself, you're always being defined by your lack of marriage, or in terms of other people's marriages, it's not as if you can somehow not be affected by what marriage means, even if you're single. So please listen to me, those of you who are single. You know, what we have, what Jesus has to say here, himself as a single man about marriage, impacts all of us. Because at the end of the day, even though you might not desire marriage in your life, at least the institution, what marriage offers, you desire. What marriage offers, you desire. All of us desire it. Which brings us to the second point about the essence of marriage. But before I answer that question of what all of us desire that's associated with marriage, we have to answer this question. What is the essence of marriage? In other words, what makes a marriage? What holds a marriage together? And the answer that Jesus gives us is his quotation from Genesis 1 and 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Leaving and cleaving is the essence of marriage. Or to put it differently, covenantal vow. A vow is the essence of marriage. Now, this principle of leaving and cleaving, and again, I have a whole sermon on this, but I want to draw your... It's interesting what, 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 what the Genesis text says. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, right? And it assumed the, the, the wife shall leave his father and mother as well, her father and mother, and be united in one. The, the most powerful natural bonds of nature when you're young are the parental bonds, right? Those are their blood ties. They're stronger than anything else. But marriage, what is marriage? Marriage is the kind of bond that is so strong that it actually causes a forsaking and a breaking of this other natural bond that's given from birth. See, see at the heart of marriage is you, you forsake, right? We use that language of forsaking all else and cleaving, right? See, at the heart of marriage is a vow, friends. It's a vow. It's a promise. It's a commitment to another human being and covenant faithfulness. If you were to ask me to marry you, and um, I've had this conversation with some of you sitting here, um, I won't necessarily say you cannot write your own vows, but what I'll say to you is, here are the traditional vows. And so anything you write has to be as strong or stronger than these. And let me just read you the vows from the Book of Common Prayer. And you guys know these. But this is what a husband says and a wife says. In the name of God, I, fill in the blank, take you, fill in the blank, to be my wife, to have and to hold, from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. Friends, a vow is not about the present, it's about the future. Marriage is, is based not upon mutual affection, even though that's part of it. It's not, the, the glue of marriage is not sort of romantic love, and it's not children. It's a vow. 
It's a vow. And a vow is something that you make a commitment to that controls and determines the course of your life. Your life, friends, whether marriage or other things, is going to be, the, the history of your life can be told in terms of the promises you make and keep or the promises you make and break. They will determine the course of your life. They will shape you. They will shape your future. And see, that's what marriage is. It's, it's this holy sort of vow that we make. And it's at the very creation of the universe. And so here becomes the context of all those things that we desire in life for marriage. And there are three, and I'm going to be very brief. Those things that we all desire, whether you're married or not, one is companionship. Marriage is the original friendship. The purpose of marriage is friendship. We all desire, whether you're single or not, you do not want to go through life alone. None of us. And if you do, then there's something pathological about you. None of us can live alone. We all need another person. And marriage is the original, it's the original friendship. It's to have a companion, somebody there. That's the essence of marriage, right? In the sense of, of what it's about from the day to day. But two, building off is, is a desire for union. And here we begin to get into the, the question of sex. That idea of the man and the woman coming together as one. And that expresses, of course, a sexual union, but it expresses a lot more than that. It expresses this idea that as all human beings, we desire to give ourselves to another human being in the most vulnerable way possible, to stand before them naked, for them to see us and for us to see them, and to be loved and received. You desire that. And the sexual sort of act consummates that. We all desire it. But third, the thing we all desire is fruitfulness. You all desire, in a sense, for your lives to be fruitful, to leave a legacy, to have something in this, to make something of, of this world. And again, having children and raising children is the pinnacle of fruitfulness in life. It's the greatest thing you can do as a human being is to raise children. And see, marriage becomes a context for this. Now we're going to talk through the course of the year about what this looks like when you're not married. How do you do these things? But these are the things that marriage provides for us. And this is why the reality of divorce is so severe. And again, there's, there's a whole sermon on divorce I have later, so I can't really touch this complex topic of divorce. But I just want to draw your attention to this, what Jesus says about divorce, because he ups the ante beyond anybody. I mean, the, 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 I mean in the, ancient, the Jewish world of this time, there's basically a no-fault divorce kind of thing. A Jewish man can basically leave his, his wife for any reason he wants. She burns the lamb, right? Out. There was a no-fault culture, no-fault divorce culture, and what Jesus does is he says, there are no grounds for divorce except one. And even that, people dispute whether that's possible. And the Bible is very strict about permissibility of divorce. Adultery and abandonment. I'll come back to these. But here's the thing about divorce and why Jesus is so, so strict about it. Because to go through a divorce is like having an amputation. It's to amputate yourself. It's self-amputation. It's to tear something asunder. That's the language. To tear asunder. It's to rip something in half. An organism that existed together to rip it in half. Calvin says, divorce is a, um, divorce. he who divorces his wife tears himself half of himself. Think about the marriage math. In, in Marriage is one plus one equals one. One plus one equals one. That's what marriage is. So divorce, if you divorce, you only can leave a marriage as a fraction. Think about this. 
One plus one equals one. When you divorce, you leave less than a person. You enter marriage as a whole person. If you leave a marriage, you leave as less than a person. Because you've lost part of yourself. That's how intimate marriage is. Now, of course, this raises all kinds of complicated issues related to permissibility to divorce, but we'll come back to those. But here's the thing, friends, that Jesus is absolutely... The inviolability of marriage is so important. Those covenantal vows are so critical. And it's interesting that the disciples, all of a sudden, this was a conversation started by the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus, and all of a sudden the disciples are like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait, because they shared the broad assumption that a Jewish man can leave his wife for, you know, relative, you know he's got an escape clause, right? And what Jesus has done here is he's closed the hatch. There's no escape hatch. And here they're thinking, oh boy, if that's the case, then it's probably better not to get married. Which is interesting, which leads to the third point, the final point, which is Jesus' alternative. Here, this is incredible. This is incredible, what Jesus says here. Uh, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Friends, now, this is a revolution. Now, what Jesus says about marriage and divorce was just shocking, although he's not seeing anything that's not already there in Scripture by a good reader of Scripture. But what Jesus says here about singleness, about being a eunuch, it's just revolutionary. This is, this is something new. Jesus is adding something here. See, in the ancient world, in this time, there was no option for singleness. There was no option for singleness. This is not, it it was a duty and obligation as a man and a woman to get married and to have children. This is universal. There's no option for singleness. If you were single, you're a widow, or you're an outsider, an outcast of, of a variety of form. And hear what Jesus, in fact, the only time in the Old Testament that you can find God Commanding somebody to be single is he commands Jeremiah, the prophet, to be single for the reason that your singleness and your lack of children will be a sign of God's curse upon the unfaithful Israel. So in other words, singleness becomes a sign of the curse in the Old Testament. But here what Jesus is saying is that no, there's something that's changed. And he affirms the goodness of the single life. And that is just so important for you, for us to hear, right? Jesus affirms singleness. This has never been done in history, in biblical history up to this point. Here Jesus does it. But to be clear, though, singleness is not a sort of equal opposite of marriage. And it's the image of the eunuch that I think helps us understand this. And I want to draw your attention to that. What is a eunuch? So somebody told me earlier, they didn't know what a eunuch is, and they looked it up. Let me give you a sort of, cl- well, not a clinical definition, but a eunuch is a person without genitals that can perform sexually. A eunuch is a person that cannot marry because they cannot perform sexually because they have been unnaturally cut. That's what it means to be a eunuch. And in the ancient world, um, there were uh, eunuchs were often uh, part of a king's harem. They were men that had been castrated in order that they wouldn't sleep with, with the king's wives, right? And this is the reference that Jesus means about some have been forced and made eunuchs by men. But a eunuch basically is somebody who's been maimed been unnaturally cut. And what's interesting here is that Jesus identifies three categories of eunuchs in which he includes himself. There are biological eunuchs, those who are born that way. We might call these intersex today. 
or those wrestling with same-sex attraction that, that is something that they cannot reorder their desire towards the opposite sex. Wesley Hill, in his book, Washed and Waiting, in a sense, identifies this. Um, deeply convicted of the biblical understanding of sexuality between a man and a woman, sees that a life of singleness is what he will embrace. And in a sense, he fits that first category of being faithful and celibate as a man who wrestles with same-sex attraction. But then there's also those in a second category that are forced, that are unable to get married for a variety of reasons, whether it's it's never turned out well for them, or they've experienced trauma in their life that has kept them from marriage. They'd like to be married, but they cannot be married. But then there's a third category we call the voluntary eunuch. And the voluntary eunuch is one who devotes himself to the kingdom. And Jesus embodies this. Where the power of the kingdom is so strong in your life that you don't even desire marriage. The power of the kingdom is so strong in life that you don't desire marriage. Now, again, I said that marriage and singleness are not equal opposites or equal options. And I don't, on the one hand, I want you to hear very, very loudly an affirmation of the single life from Jesus and an affirmation of the single life in here. You do not have to get married. To be clear, you do not have to get married and experience marriage to be fully alive or to be fully human. But with that said... The single life is not an easy life, and many of you know this. It is not easy. Why? Because there's a lot of loneliness. You have sexual urges, and if you're going to be faithful biblically, biblically, what do you do with those? And there is often this sense of fruitfulness in your life, and sometimes you think, well, I wish I had kids, or I wish I had more, more relationships that were family relationships. It's not an easy calling. And yet, and what Jesus says is so key here, is that singleness is, is a gift It's something you have to receive as a call. It's not like marriage, right? I mean, marriage is a gift as well, but you don't receive it as a call because it's part of human nature. There's there's an orientation towards marriage. But singleness is unique in that it's a call. And again, we'll we'll explore this in more depth of what that means. But I want to draw your attention as as I draw this to a close. I want to draw your attention to singleness as a unique sign of God's new creation reality. That in a way, singleness is a unique sign of God's new creation reality. It's, and, and, and it only becomes visible. Its plausibility in life only becomes visible in the light of Jesus. And it only becomes possible in the family of the church that he creates. See, the single life is impossible without the church. And, and this is going to be something I'll explore through the year. But, and this is one of the deep challenges for us as, a, as disciples. Is that the church, see, Jesus reimagines family. Yes, natural families stay there, but he reimagines the family unit to be the church, to where single people don't have to be alone. They have family. They are connected. There's a, a fruitfulness they can participate in that was not available to them out before this time. Friends, this is an incredible text that Jesus welcomes eunuchs. <laughs> Jesus welcomes eunuchs. There's a verse in Deuteronomy 23 that says this. No one whose testicles have been crushed or whose male organ has been cut off may enter the assembly of the Lord. In Jesus' day, the eunuch was an outcast. A eunuch was not allowed to enter into the assembly. They were somebody who was shunned. They had been maimed. They couldn't go in into worship. 
And so when Jesus is taking this category of eunuch, and he uses that as a category to describe the single life, it's incredible because what he's saying is this. is like he's saying that those who are out traditionally, who never fit into marriage naturally, who, never, who always felt themselves unnaturally cut, now have a place. They now have a place in God's family. They now have a place in the world. And what's so incredible as you read the Gospels and you read into the, in, in, in John is that Jesus builds a family out of eunuchs. He builds a kingdom out of eunuchs. And so, friends, th- this morning, are you one who has been unnaturally cut in terms of your desires for traditional marriage or family? In terms of some sort of sense of disorder or not fitting? In a way, sin cuts all of us unnaturally, and it's we cutting ourselves. But I want you to hear this gospel news. And this passage is a fulfillment of that verse that we read, that John had read from Isaiah. Jesus is fulfilling this in our very midst. He says, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give a house. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument, a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they will not be cut off. How incredible. (laughs) The eunuch becomes a sign of God's new creation. And friends, so wherever you find yourself, in whatever situation, sexually or otherwise, as one who's been cut unnaturally, know this. There is nothing... (laughs) In you, psychologically, biologically, culturally, socially, racially, there is nothing that can keep you out of the assembly. There can nothing that can keep you out of the family of Jesus. The only thing is your own hard-heartedness. That's the only thing. Be assured that however you've been cut that the love of God is powerful to overcome. Let's pray. Oh God, um, all of us here are unworthy. We have been unnaturally cut. We cut ourselves in many ways. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Jesus... um, as a man who never married, creates a kingdom out of eunuchs and outcasts and people who don't belong and include them and give them in his community and his church deep love and friendship and oneness with you and a life of fruitfulness. And so this, as we look towards a year of reflecting on these, these deep and broad and sensitive issues, Lord, we pray your presence that in the midst of this we may draw close to you and learn more of what it means to be your followers and to be your people. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.